How is it that you are consistently able to write so well? I write for really for the computer screen. <laughs> I don't think about is it going to be successful? Is somebody going to buy it? I'm having fun with this. I just I want to write a good story, and if I write a good story, then I'm happy. And if it sells, great. And if it doesn't, well, okay. You know, so what? Authors on the Air with Terry Shepard, award-winning broadcaster, narrator, and author of the Jessica Ramirez Thrillers. Brought to you by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and by Ramirez and Clark Publishers. Presenting Terry Shepard's latest Jessica Ramirez adventure, Chasing the Captain. Available in print, digital, and audiobook everywhere. Thanks, Lisa. A good interviewer maintains a tiny bit of social distance from his or her guests. Our job is to make sure we discover interesting things about our authors together. But I always make an exception for D.P. Lyle, a brilliant cardiologist with Alabama roots and a sharp mind for storytelling. Doug and I always end up down some rabbit hole exploring the nuances that can turn a good book into a great book. And so it was when we linked up recently to talk about Tally Man, his newest Kane Harper thriller. Well, Tally Man uh, is the third in the Kane Harper series. And, uh, you know, Kane and Harper, Kane's a ex-special ops guy out of the military that hung out with the SEALs and Delta Force. And he was basically a ranger by training, but he was an expert with a knife and he could get in and out of places and do the deed. You know, Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever he could get in and out. No one has ever known he was there. And suddenly a bomb maker was dead. That kind of thing. Harper was uh, his non-biological sister. They grew up together by a gypsy family roaming around the South. And then they got adopted away and didn't see each other for 15 years. She ended up going to the Navy, Naval Intelligence, then the CIA and started running ops. And they ended up, their two ops smashing together on the other side of the world. And that's how they saw each other again after 15 years. So now they're fixers and they go out and fix stuff by whatever means are necessary. In Tally Man, it revolves around a, a, a guy in his 20s who is a college professor in a small town, a made-up town called Laurel, Tennessee. It's way down uh, uh, just east of Memphis, almost at the Mississippi border. But it's a small college town, and he's out for a jog one day and gets shot and killed and uh, it, under strange circumstances. And uh the same night a girl has gone missing who turns up two days later uh, that might be traced back to a guy who's been dormant for a number of years that they call the tally man because he carves the number of his victim and his victims. Okay. Well, it turns out that Sonny, Sonny Coleman, the, the, the professor that got shot, is the son of the uh, U.S. ambassador to NATO. And she calls in Kane and Harper to go down there. She wants to keep it low key, even though she knows the FBI and the CIA are going to be involved because, well, who she is. But she wants to keep it low key and off the radar and have them figure out what happened, who did this, why did this happen, why him? Because he's not that kind of guy. He's just out for a run. He was a, a runner. He ran every night. And he was on a rural road in the, outside the small town. Bang, shot, dead. So that's kind of how the story starts, and it revolves around them trying to not only figure out who killed Sonny, but is it related to the re recrudescence of this uh, of this serial killer who suddenly reappeared 
Is there any nexus there, or are they two isolated incidents? So Kane and Harper get involved, you know, and as they say, the story goes. How do you develop great characters like Kane and Harper? Well, it's interesting because I thought about who they were before I thought about who they are. You know, I, I always wanted to write about a character that had grown up in this, what we called in the South Irish travelers, this gypsy community. When I was a kid, and I mean kid, mid-50s, early 50s maybe, uh, I was probably six, seven years old. And my dad and I were going somewhere, and we saw this little, literally a wagon train going down the side of a county road. It was horse-drawn flatbeds. And all these people, some of them walking, some of them riding. I mean, it really was a thing out of uh, Steinbeck, you know. <laughs> and uh, I said, Dad, who are those people? He said, well, they're gypsies. They're Irish travelers. He said, they're probably heading over to the fairgrounds to set up. And sure enough, they did. Well, it turns out they would show up every now and then. And they would put on shows and do stuff. They probably picked pockets and robbed houses and all that stuff, too. You know, who, who knows? But I was always fascinated by that, that how these people lived that way, just basically rolling along from town to town to town. Well, flash forward, I'm in medical school where the gypsies would come into town in Birmingham twice a year to have babies. And now they've graduated to pick up trucks and RVs, and they'd park in the parking lot. And you would know they were there. You'd come in 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning getting ready to start rounds and get your day started as a student. And you'd go down to the cafeteria to get some coffee. You'd notice all the flatware and plates were gone. It was all replaced with plastic and paper because they would steal everything. And so the first thing you would do is get your cup of coffee. And the second thing you'd do is go to the bathroom, get a roll of toilet paper, and put it in the pocket of your white coat because they'd steal all of it. Yeah, yeah, it was well known. But anyway, I was just fascinated by this culture. So I decided I want these characters to be raised in that. And Kane and Harper, till Harper was 13 and Kane was 12, that's what they did. So Bobby was trained in second story work. from the time He did his first solo when he was nine years old, where he could climb into a house, even with people there, and move around through the house and steal stuff and get back out. And he was trained to do that. He taught to try and climb trees and all this and vines and trellises. They trained him to do this. Harper, on the other hand, could manipulate people. She could cry at the drop of a hat. She was very smart. She knew how to read people. She could pick your pocket while she was looking you right in the eye. They trained these, these two characters to do all this because it was part of existing. They had to do that to survive. They would break into farms and steal crops and stuff and all this at night. And there's some scenes about that, you know, going in and loading up on some corn and a burlap bag and dragging it out. And as kids, they were trained to do all this stuff. And then, of course, hunting and fishing and living off the land. And so all of this plays into their skills later on. Plus, then they were both trained by the military in, in the lethal arts, as it were. So that combination made them characters that I really love. I love writing about them because there's, there's no limits to what they will do. One of my favorite reviews of your books opines that you write about characters as if you've experienced their lives. How did you build Bobby? Um, I talked to some friends, you know, like in the first book, uh, I had a scene that flashed back to him going through Sears training which is, you know, survival, evasion, you know, all that stuff, where they train them to get away, to hide if they're captured, not to say anything, that kind of thing. Um, and so 
Sears training is held in various locations, but one of them's you know like in North Carolina area near Fort Bragg, uh, and Fort uh, forget the name right now. But uh, Bobby's done that and he's turned loose. Well, he says this is a stupid game. I'm not interested in this crap. You know, he was kind of a little bit of a rebel his whole life, obviously being a gypsy. So he peeled off from the group and snuck back onto the base and hid out. Nobody could find him for days. And then he just shows up in the CO's office. Ah, I'm bored with this. Well, that's when the CIA saw this guy's different than everybody else. Let's go talk to him. And that's got him into ranger school and got him into all the other stuff. But I, I, I talked to some guys that had been through Sears training and what it was like. It's really just they turn you loose for a few hours and track you down. But uh, I embellished it a little bit. Um, and then Huntsville, where I grew up, is a military community. The Redstone Arsenal's there and the Marshall Space Flight Center now. It came along when I was about 10 years old. Um, and so they built rockets, but they also had a big military thing there. So a lot of my uncles and a lot of friends, a lot of everybody were in the military or, or, or we had a lot of military personnel around. So you kind of learned that. But they just, you know, and besides, you know, whatever you can dream up, the CIA can do, you know. So many books and so many villains. How do you keep coming up with good ones? Uh, well, you know, I watch every true crime thing known to man. I mean, I really do. I tape them all. Everything that's on Nat Geo or Discovery or ID or whatever. I mean, I, I subscribe to them, you know, to record everything. And so I, I, some, a lot of them cover the same story, you know, but it's all from different angles. But the point is, is that I've seen a lot of diabolical stuff. And how the criminal mind works is fascinating. It really is fascinating to me. It's like, you know, nine times out of ten, you're saying, well, that might be clever, but what were you thinking? You know, you're an idiot. The one thing you learn out of all that is you're not going to get away with it. You're not going to get away with it. You know, it's the citizen or something or some kind of thing is going to happen, and it's going to screw up, and then you're going to be, you know, like Ralph Cramden. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, you know. Um uh, and, and most criminals, what I found do the deed and then try to figure out how to cover for it instead of doing it the other way around, because most of it's impulsive and not well thought out and that helps the cops. But then there's some very diabolical people there that are very smart at what they do and, uh, very clever at what they do, but yet they have this streak of sociopathy that is beyond our reach. It's beyond our understanding. You try to. You try to think about how, how did he get from point A to point C? I, I don't get the connection here. How did you go from here to doing this? And I think, you know, that's the study of, uh, that's the, uh, uh, that's what the study of, of criminal psychology is all about. That's what profiling is all about. You know, my good friend, Catherine Ramslin, that's where she spends her life. You know, she spent a lot of time with BTK, you know, interviewing him and wrote that book on it. You know, where did, where did this, where did these people come from? I don't know anybody like that. And I've met a lot of people in my life in the practice of medicine for 50 years. I don't think I've met anybody like that, <laughs> but you never know. But it's just weird. And I like this. Just last night, I watched a thing on, um, on, uh, um, um, oh, I, I hate getting old. Uh, the big guy that was the, uh, that was the co-ed killer. Uh, anyway, he ended up killing his mother and all that and why he did it. Uh, six foot nine, Crazy man, very smart, but any I'll think of his name in a minute. But um, I mean, it was fascinating it, it, how he got from point A to point B to point C. 
and uh, what happened inside his brain. Well, when you write about characters like that, there has to be a reason they got that way. There has to at least be some hint of what their motive is because everybody's got a motive. You know, serial killers are hard to track because they move and they often don't have a direct relationship with the person. But they have a motive and they have a, a means and an opportunity. And those are what, you know, that's the reason VICAP and that's the reason profiling was developed to try to figure out how do we find these guys. Not only after they've done a few murders, but how do we find them before? And it's very difficult. And it's a hot topic right now. How do you preempt crime you know i remember that what was it the minority report you know was a show about that which was very futuristic as far but how do you know who's going to do this and when you look back it's always well you know he was weird you know and look at his blog you know i mean well why didn't somebody look at it before (laughs) and i'm not saying the u.s government don't get me wrong u.s government needs to go away as far as i'm concerned most of it 90 percent of it and guard the castle walls and get out of my life um but uh how do the neighbors and family and friends not say you know there's something wrong with joe you know kemper edmund kemper is the guy's thing that's the yeah yeah that's the co-ed killer brilliant IQ off the charts, very well-spoken, huge guy. But then he chopped up people and cut their heads off. How did, how did, I don't get it. When you were in your medical school rotation, did you ever consider psychiatry? No, but I did enjoy psychiatry. No, no, there's too many crazy people in there. And I'm talking about the psychiatrist themselves, you know, but, but, but I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed psychiatry. I, I took, I took a class, a course in it, obviously in college. And then of course in medical school, I did a, a rotation and, uh, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating stuff, but at the end of the day, do you really fix anything? You know, that's what you're still left with the same problem. You just kind of put a bandaid on it. I mean, in the most, People are going to be people. And, and as Eric Burns said, you know, and I'm okay and you're okay, except it's probably I'm okay and you're screwed up, you know. But uh, he said by the third grade, by, by the age three, people have their, their things worked out, how they're going to live their life and how they're going to inter- interact with people. Well, I've always said that you learn everything you need to know to get through life during recess of the third grade. And, you know, yeah, I got there for 20 minutes as you take your morning recess and during that 20 minutes, you learn how you're going to interact with people, how you're going to do what you do. You learn all that stuff right there in real time. And that will that will set the stage for how you're going to live the rest of your life. You know, if you're a bully, you're going to be a bully. If a bully, if you let a bully bully you, you're going to be timid, you know, you know, and, and anywhere in between. Those are the extremes. Um, and so you learn. You learn, I think, in the third grade. So. Some of these kids, I guess, learn pretty bad stuff in the third grade, you know, and then they go on and blossom into these really, really evil characters. I mean, you know, what made Ted Bundy tick, for Christ's sakes? I'm reading a book like right now in the Leopold and Loeb case. It's uh, it's, some, it's really well done. It's a great research book. I forget the authors right now. That's what happens when you read on a, on a Kindle app. You never see the cover of the book, so you never remember the title. You never remember the authors, which is, to me, the da- otherwise, when we pick up a book, you see it every time. Um, uh, 
But the the whole question of these two guys, it's not did they do it or not. Of course they did it. They confessed for Christ's sakes. And the evidence was mountainous. There's no question about it. I know later they tried to say, well, maybe they didn't. No, they did it. The question is why? What drove these two privileged children who were 19 years old to kill a, what, a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid, Bobby Franks? What, what? What motivated them? What was in their little squirrely brains to say this is a good idea? And they made mistakes from the beginning. Oh, they planned it, too. They planned it and had everything. And and anyway, it was. But it's a fascinating study in psychopathy. And, And again, it's like, where do these people come from? I don't know. What attracts us to this stuff? We keep coming back for more. Uh, I think he said, well, boy, I thought I, my life was screwed up. I'm really pretty good. That's part of it. I think uh, I've always felt that, that crime fiction, which is what we're talking about, that whole broad umbrella of crime fiction. Uh, first of all, it's a cat and mouse game, and people like games. And second of all, it's dirty laundry, and people like dirty laundry. And so it's gossip almost, you know, it's chatting over the back fence, it's telling tales. And if you can have a good murder mystery, it encompasses all of that. It encompasses every, everything in human storytelling, because it's fascinating people doing fascinating things with fascinating results, even though they're dark and squirrely a lot of the times. Sometimes they're humorous. I mean, some of the things people do and try to get away with, it's like, good Lord, are you out of your mind? You know, this one right now, of this this plane where the co-pilot either jumped or fell out. What's going on there? I don't know. But, you know, the pilot's there, and the next thing you know, the co-pilot's gone. They were having some kind of trouble, I think. And my, my question is, is this guy, was he suicidal? Was he trying to climb out on the wing to fix the engine? You know, I mean, people do stupid things. I have no idea, but this is an odd story. And I'm curious as to what happened. Or did the other guy hit him in the head and push him out? I don't know. But I can come up with a lot of scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> do you know at the beginning of your stories how they're going to end? I know the good guy's going to win, the bad guy's going to lose, but I don't know when, where, and how. Uh, I usually have, when I start a story, I will have maybe a half a dozen scenes in mind that I think are fun scenes and will fit this story. But all the stuff in between, and sometimes even how am I going to start this, I don't know. How I'm going to end it, I don't know. And that's why always you get to the 40,000, 50,000-word mark and you freak out because this is stupid. This is a hot mess. It's ridiculous. It's awful. And I don't know how it's going to end, and I don't know, you know, what the final confrontation is going to be. I don't know how I'm going to get from here to there, and I'm a fraud, and I shouldn't be doing this. And what I usually do then, because I write fast, I, I will go back and add and move stuff around as I'm telling the story to myself, so to speak, but not major. Then about that time, I go all the way back to the beginning. And I go through it, not necessarily heavy editing, but getting the story and correcting anything that pops up in front of my eyes and moving because now I've got all the parts. I know what's going on. I know who all the players are. And now I can go back and fix a lot of that stuff. That usually only takes three or four days to do of sitting down and writing to go through that because I've already told the story. And my first drafts aren't that bad anymore. They used to be awful. They're not that bad anymore. So now once I get back to that 40, 50,000 word thing, the path is clear. Boom. 
Now I can race to the finish. And then I'll go back and rewrite it two or three more times just to clean up stuff. Uh, one of those is always printed out and read with, you know, pen in hand. And then um, I send it off. We talked about minor characters before. Part of the magic of your work is not just the protagonist, but who you surround them with. I love minor characters. Yeah, I love, I love, she's obviously a major character, but I also love minor characters. You know, and they say, well, don't, don't give a minor character a name. Of course you do. Of course you do. So she go, go into a store and there's a funny interaction with a clerk there. A clerk needs a name. It makes, it, it, it rounds out their personality. They're not just a generic person. A name means a lot and you got to come up with the right name. And, uh, um, I don't know if I mentioned this before. I, I met Elmore Leonard and we had a couple of talks at the old Maui writers conference. And we sat by ourselves for like 45 minutes on two occasions and just talked story and writing and all this. He was such a gracious, gracious man. Well, one of the things I asked him, I said, though, let me ask you this, you know, you, you have such incredible characters. You know, we love them, but they have no social redeeming value whatsoever. They're all criminals and scumbags and stuff. You know, he laughed. He said, yeah, I love those guys. I said, well, it shows. And I said, you know, uh, I said, you know, I don't do this, but do you do like character sketches and stuff so that, you know, you know them so well because you do know them so well. And he said, nah, he said, I'll think about them, you know, maybe for a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months. But once I know their name, I know them. And it was like, yes, that is so perfect. Once he knows their name, he knows them. And what it means is mentally he has lived with these people long enough to know who they are. And the name, I mean, Chili Palmer. Got to be a loan shark. Got to be. Linda Moon. Got to be a lounge singer. You know? Raylan Gibbons. U.S. Marshal. I mean, he comes up with these great characters, but the names are always perfect, and it opens the door. So give minor characters names. What's it going to hurt? You know? Her name's Alice. Fine. Now you know we know she's Alice. We like her better already. You know, that kind of thing. So, um, but I love minor characters. And, and then I love the sidekicks. You know, I really love the sidekicks. You know, uh, I love pancake, you know. He, everybody loves pancake. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he, he can't afford to feed him, but everybody loves pancake. <laughs> and that's obviously a running trope in the stories: is pancakes prodigious eating. Do you ever worry that your sidekicks will outshine your stars? Oh uh, yeah, you know it can happen, and I've read books that were that way. But uh, I, I try to, you know, I write in multiple points of view, and in the Kane Harper, it's all third person third person multiple in the Jake books Jake is first person and everybody else is third so if I look at that and I use Scrivener and so then I cover color code each scene as to who who the point of view character is you know which just takes like one second and so if you look down the thing in 90% of them are all in Jake's point of view so there's no doubt whose story it is um, but you got to venture I think when you're writing a thriller out into other points of view because well you know, the reader's got to know more than the protagonist does. That's the thrill. And that's the downside of first person. You really can't. Yeah, and, and, and you, you really can't. I remember I was on a panel once and somebody took issue with that. Well, I can write a thriller first person. You know, I didn't, I didn't engage. And, you know, fine, you go, go do that. And you can, 
but it's very difficult and you run the risk of your protagonist looking like an idiot. It's like, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't she see what's going on here? Didn't she pick that up? What's wrong with her? I saw it. And now, of course, you got the thrill there because you know that this is the bad guy. You know that this, don't go there. Don't open that door. You know, for God's sakes, don't go in a crypt. I mean, if you do that, you deserve to die. But, um, uh, but the reader now knows something. And if you're in the protagonist's point of view, you're sitting there thinking, don't you see this? I see this. And so you run that risk of looking like an idiot. Better just to step outside. And have the other guy, the bad guy, some guy, somebody doing something that changes what the protagonist is seeing. But they don't know it yet. That's the thrill. Superior knowledge. And so I think pure first person is very hard to write. In your Criminal Mischief podcast, you talked recently about the importance of the first chapter and the first paragraph. Uh start with a question and it does not or, or at least something interesting you know it doesn't have to be an explosion or a car chase or a gunfight or even a body it doesn't have to be any of that it doesn't have to be your protagonist you know all those rules you know start with your protagonist start with this start with action start with that no 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 start with something interesting now, in some of the Jake books, it starts well with Jake doing absolutely nothing except thinking about stuff, but he's thinking about stuff, and it's funny. And so that grabs the reader, and it creates that voice. This is what this story's going to be like. You come along for the ride. We're going to have fun with it. Um, I mean, and with the Kane Harper, I started in Tally Man. The first scene is uh, Sonny Coleman out for a jog, and he's on his best time he's going to have a great run he's two miles from town on his four mile loop and he's really enjoying himself and it's a cool foggy night a little bit kind of the low ground fog that you get in the south sometimes and next thing you know something odd happens and he can't figure out what it is and he ends up dead so it's in his point of view but he he's dead by the end of the first chapter but that's what launches the story well it's an interesting scene because something's going on. Is there a rule? No, there's not a rule. Just make it interesting. And and you have to because editors and readers won't go beyond the first page or two if, if it's not well written and it's not fun and they can't access it. You know, I picked up books that have been raved and I read five pages saying I can't do this. I can't do this. This is just too discombobulated, and I don't get the rhythm of what's going on here. I don't get a rhythm in the writing. It doesn't work for me. Maybe it works for millions of other people. It doesn't work for me. I remember The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I started it twice, and I read like 50 pages, and I thought, there's no way that I can read this book. There's no way. This is boring. There's nothing happening. It's stupid. I don't care. I want to set it on fire. And a friend of mine said, oh, no, 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 no. Stay with it for 150 pages. I said, 150 pages? You know, my life isn't that long. And uh, stay with it for 150 pages, and I guarantee you, you'll be hooked. So I went back for the third time, and I did. And when Elizabeth Salander showed up, everything changed. So why didn't they put her in the beginning? Exactly. They could have cut that first 150 pages down to three as background material, so to speak. And it could have even been sprinkled in later. They could have started with her showing up at Blumkus' at this place. They could have started with all of that. Um, 
and the movie really did. It gave you quick hit pieces of that he's in trouble, that he's being sued, that he's losing his job. You know, okay, so he is a discredited journalist. We can get all that in four little cuts, you know, on a movie thing. In 20 seconds, we know what's going on here. He's coming out of the building, newspaper. What do you think about being fired? You know, and then they go to, some, you know, the, the cuts that movies do. And then the next thing you know, the story's going to start. And that's what the book should have done. But I think Larson was just clearing his throat. I think he probably didn't know what the book was about yet and was just trying to get this tale started. And a lot of first-time writers do that. And uh, you know what I'm saying. So they spend 20 pages and getting trying to tell themselves the story and trying to figure out where am I going with this and what's it about because they haven't thought it through. I'm not going to say that's bad because I don't think mine through either. But I do know where to start. But they end up cutting all that out, or at least they should. D.P. Lyle is our guest on Authors on the Air. One thing that continually mystifies me is the number of amazing authors who never make it to USA Today or the New York Times bestseller list. What do you think separates those people from the rest of us? Luck has a lot to do with it. Marketing has a lot to do with it. Writing a good story has a lot to do with it. Uh, Being a good writer has a lot to do with it. Connections, who you know, and all that has a lot to do with it. Um, You know, it's all that. It's all that put together, and everybody knows it's a very steep pyramid. Uh, If you want, you know, it's kind of like being a pro football quarterback or or being on the PGA Tour. It's a very steep pyramid. For every person that's there, there's hundreds of thousands of people who aren't there and are trying to climb that mountain. So um, it's all that. It's talent. It's luck. It's connections. It's right place, right time. I mean, the Da Vinci Code, my God. It was the right thing at the right time. Not the best written book I've ever read, but what a story. What a story. Even if it factually may not have been altogether true, you know, as far as the the, the historical stuff. Who cares? It was a good story, and we loved it, and we enjoyed it. And it became, wow, overwhelming. And you can say that about a lot of of stories. Tell a good yarn, and then hopefully the right person will read it. What keeps you writing? If you have fun with it, you'll keep doing it. If you don't, it becomes a job, it becomes painful, and you dread sitting down in front of the computer. And, I, God, I've been doing it now for, I probably started writing in the mid-90s or started trying to, you know, and uh, taking classes, reading books, that kind of thing. So it's been, you know, over 25 years. I can't imagine uh, not having a story going on. I, I my brain, I don't know what it would do. It'd probably explode. D.P. Lyle's newest is Tally Man, the latest in his Kane Harper series. His other characters include Jake Longley, Dub Walker, and Samantha Cody. He's also written extensively about forensics and fiction. Find him online at dplylemd.com. Authors on the Air with Terry Shepard is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check out Chasing the Captain, the newest Jessica Ramirez thriller from Terry Shepard, available in print, digital, and audiobook. I'm Lisa Davis. Join Terry in the next chapter for Authors on the Air.